0: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be speaking to these authors who've written an incredibly topical book. Um, In addition to being an interesting one historically, essentially, they've done a lot of cool things in this book, titled NATO's Burden-Sharing Disputes, Past, Present, and Future Prospects. Um, It's just out in 2022 from Palgrave Macmillan, um, and we are very lucky to have one of the two authors with us today. Unfortunately, the other was not able to be here, Um, but this book is written by Dr. Tommy Koivula and Helia Ossa, and we are very lucky to have Helia with us today to speak about this book that makes a really convincing argument that burden sharing is one of the absolutely key things we need to understand both historically, in the present, and in the future of NATO, which is certainly not going away from conversation or study anytime soon. So, Helia, I'm very excited to welcome you to the podcast to speak about your book. Thank you very much for having me here. Could we start off, please, with a bit of an introduction from yourself, maybe a bit about your co-author as well, and explain kind of how you guys decided to come together to write this book?
1: Sure. So my name is Helia Ossa. I'm a researcher at the Finnish National Defence University, and I'm also a PhD student there at the moment. And my colleague, um, Tommi Koivula, is the professor of strategy uh, in the Finnish National Defence University as well. And what encouraged us to write this book is that even though burden-sharing is one of the most long-standing issues within NATO, we felt that it has not been studied enough as a broad phenomenon. So what it is about, how it has evolved as a concept and as a real-life phenomenon, and also what kind of future impacts burden-sharing may have on NATO so, our main motivation was to gather and structure the history of burden sharing disputes and to make them in a way more understandable as a historical, contemporary, and also as a future um, phenomenon. And another thing that motivated us to write the book um, was the goal of serving the Finnish discussion and understandings of, of NATO. Um, Even though Finland has been in a close partnership with with NATO since the mid-90s, with good results, um, we felt that the internal dynamics of the alliance were not that well known in Finland and deserved a closer look. And of course, after after that, Finland has applied for, for the NATO membership. So this is more than topical now
0: definitely serving lots of purposes there and bringing a lot of different strands together um and so kind of to allow us to dive into some of the details of the argument i think the obvious place to start is Can you explain for us what is burden sharing in the context of NATO?
1: Yes. So the basis for NATO's burden sharing is set in the Article 3 of the Washington Treaty, which basically states that the allies need to maintain and develop their individual and collective capacity to resist an armed attack through self-help and mutual aid. And this is often understood as a question of money. So who contributes, how much, um, whether the contributions are fair, and so on. But one of our key messages in the book is that burden sharing should be studied as a broader issue than than this. Uh, and, And it should not be isolated from other dynamics of transatlantic relations. Um, so we think burden sharing is not just about contributing resources to the alliance, but it's often related to other political disputes within NATO too. And especially after the Cold War, the debate has gained other aspects, like who contributes troops to out-of-area operation or the most um, or to the most vulnerable member states, so the Baltic countries. Arctic countries, for example, uh, or who's ready to commit their diplomatic or reputational resources for the good of the alliance. So in our view, uh, burden sharing is not just about financial contributions. And another key finding by us in the book is that Burden sharing should be seen as an evolving phenomenon. It, it changes over time. Um, and we found that tra- that transitional phases like the end of the Cold War, for example, uh, they seem to attract discussion within NATO on what is the fair share of, of contribution um, amongst the member
0: states. So it is actually that evolution I'd love to pick up on because I think that was one of the most interesting Um, aspects of the book was not just the argument going, it has evolved, but then tracing it um, and understanding what that has, what those changes have looked like. So Could you tell us a bit about what kinds of topics dominated early NATO debates on burden sharing? Yes. So um, originally,
1: when NATO was established in in, uh, 1949, burden sharing was basically about how the transatlantic allies shared responsibility of Europe's security. Um, The U.S. would contribute to European security and defense, uh, also to their economic recovery after the World War. And then in return, Europeans promised to rebuild their militaries, their societies, maintain uh, internal stability, and and also to work on European uh, integration. But of course, uh, it it wasn't as simple as that in real life. Um, There were many, many issues during the the Cold War years, uh, but the two main issues that we found, where that well, firstly, um, the divisive issue in the early early burden sharing debates, uh, where that European allies, where that European allies had insufficient investments in defense capabilities, and and they they had they were really reluctant to take more responsibility of their own defense. Um, there just simply wasn't enough political will in Europe to fulfill the defense spending targets that the allies had agreed on. And this naturally frustrated the Americans. And so, the, sorry, sorry
0: continue. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, sorry. That second um, main issue during the Cold War early uh, burning sharing debates was that Europeans and the US saw NATO's purpose in a very different way. Um, For Europe, NATO's main purpose was the defense of Europe, but the US felt that European allies should also show solidarity towards the US and and participate in operations in in places like Korea or Vietnam. So the Americans felt that Europe was not doing enough and Europeans thought that they didn't need to participate in, in American wars. Um, So, here we see that even though um, much of the early burden sharing debates were about financial contributions, um, the debate was already then extended to issues like how willing the Allies are to contribute troops to different missions and and how willing they were to fight together.
0: Mm. Not easy questions, really. (laughs) Um, But it does bring me to kind of one of the things I think is often seen in the media, or at least is assumed about burden sharing debates within NATO, which is the role of the US and kind of tensions between European allies and America about kind of who does what. So what do you show in the book? Um, How much does US foreign policy really drive these burden sharing debates within NATO? It's a really, really important question. So in the book,
1: we approach the disputes, burden sharing disputes through five different drivers or tracks, if you like. Um, These are geopolitical changes related to Russia. That's uh, number one. Uh, Two is uh, US retrenchment and renewal. Uh, The third track is European passivity and activism. Fourth one is NATO's out of area operation. And and the fifth one um, is is a driver that we define as uh, emerging issues. So we see the U.S. foreign policy as just one dimension in NATO's burden-sharing debates, even though it is a very important one. Uh, And based on historical analysis, we found that whenever Washington has sought... Um, retrenchment from the world. It has increased pressure on on Europe uh, to do more. And and then again, during the times of increased foreign policy ambition, the US has been much more willing to overlook uh, these imbalances in in military uh, expenditure within NATO. And we also found that... um, Economic hardship, U.S. military commitments uh, overseas, the European reluctance to increase contributions towards NATO. These are all main factors that tend to lead the U.S. to bring burden sharing into NATO's agenda. So it seems that when the U.S. faces economic hardship, it's more likely to demand more responsibility from its allies or the more the U.S. is military percent abroad in places like Afghanistan or Iraq, uh, or nowadays in the Pacific region, the more it expects allies to support it financially um, or by sending troops to these areas.
0: Mm, that makes sense. Um, but I think that that's worth kind of poking at a little bit further, um, because you show in the course of the book this idea of kind of the turbulent times or the changing conditions um, can impact debates around burden-sharing in NATO, in, for example, the United States, its own domestic reform policy context that can have implications. So I was wondering if you could tell us about the 1970s as a particular time where the burden-sharing debate in NATO... Had a lot going on.
1: Yes, yes, that was indeed a very uh, tense time in NATO, and there were several reasons for that. Um, first of all, the international security environment uh, was quite a lot better in the 1970s, uh, thanks to the détente policies, um, and as a result of this, Europe no longer needed the U.S. support as much as before. And this made the U.S. question the need for maintaining such large troops in in Europe. And there were also disputes between the U.S. and Europe because European economic integration process was taking uh, new steps ahead, which the U.S. then again saw as kind of a rivalry. And the U.S. was particularly frustrated that Europeans put so much effort on political and economic integration but not on defense and military capabilities. Um, And as a result of all this, um, there were several attempts in the US Senate in the 1970s, also in the 1960s already, uh, to reduce troop numbers in Europe and and, and to make Europe to kind of offset the US defense expenditures. Um, In the end, none of these efforts worked, but they, they had a long
0: lasting impact on the transatlantic relations. Hmm. definitely lots of things that are maybe forgotten from today's debates that i found really interesting oh, i hadn't yes. realized that they were thinking about that um but then some other things you were like oh wow wait a second they were thinking about that so far back but we're still doing that now exactly um, and one of them obviously that is in the news very much now and certainly probably more than when you initially decided to write this book is the question of NATO enlargement um which is not a new issue, uh, starts really in the post-Cold War era in particular, but we're still talking about it today. So can you maybe tell us a bit about how this particular issue within NATO has impacted burden-sharing debates? Yes, so um, the enlargement
1: or in, in, enlargement processes have, of course, created both costs and benefits uh, to NATO and its its allies. Um, on the cost side, um, the new member states Um, especially after the end of the Cold War. They had to modernize their military infrastructure and capabilities uh, in order to make sure that they were interoperable. Um, NATO also needed to grant the new members. uh, I'm I'm talking now about um, countries that used to be uh, Soviet republics. So NATO needed to grant them um, military support that they were entitled to as as members. And this of course created costs because NATO had to defend a much larger area and and much longer borders. Um, Also the decision-making processes became more complicated when when the number of allies increased um, and this naturally created new burden sharing discussions. Uh, But when it comes to the benefits of the enlargement, uh, the collective defense capabilities tend to improve when uh, when there are new members coming. And, and in some sense, the burden sharing then becomes less of an issue as more member states share the common burden and, and contribute together to security and defense. Of course, the problem then is that um, as the number of um, member states, uh, member countries increases, there are also different uh, understandings of what are the most uh, uh topical threats and what the NATO should
0: focus on hmm. and you show in the book that one of the the big changes in those discussions about what should NATO do and what things should NATO prioritize was um, the shift to crisis management um, in the post-cold War era that again is something that starts in the 90s and yet we still see a lot of impact today. So I was wondering if you could tell us about kind of how that shift, in focus impacted these discussions around burden sharing? Yes, so when NATO
1: assumed the crisis management role in the early 90s, uh, after the end of the Cold War, the perceptions of burden sharing changed at the same time. Um, Some countries like Canada, Denmark, Norway, they saw NATO more and more as a political organization and not just as a military organization that it essentially was during the Cold War years. And that's why they also saw the new responsibilities of NATO um, and also the concept of burden sharing from a much broader perspective so burden sharing was not just about sharing the military burden anymore but it it was also about political burdens such as supporting crisis management operations or or democratization processes in the new member countries that i actually just um, talked about um, so when NATO started participating in crisis management operations the focus of the burden sharing debate in a way shifted from financial inputs to outputs And what this meant in practice was that the burden-sharing debate was more about allies' willingness to take economic, political, and and military responsibilities and risks. There there were still demands for increased defense spending, but but participating in out-of-area operations in Afghanistan, for example, it became another integral part of fair burden-sharing and how
0: a good ally looked like. Interesting. It, it, it's. I think the you talked about the kind of five areas and I think that's one of the strengths of the book is that it weaves together all these different pieces so that you don't try and artificially look at them in isolation because that wouldn't make any sense um, but equally clarify them so we're not just going this is a big tangled knot of string what are we trying to do? Um, I think that's a tension that the book manages really well in the way it's sort of structured um, and set up and then I think that allows you to then tackle kind of the big future questions because of course, who knows what will happen in the future? Um, And I'm sure given the timing of when you wrote the book and when it was published, obviously a lot of things were changing around NATO and NATO membership um, as this was all happening. And yet the structure of the book and the kind of tracing of these themes over time, I think still makes the conclusions really relevant to think through. And so I'd love to kind of throw you one of the big questions you address in the book, which is to what extent can we think of NATO being in a quote, new Cold War, not just necessarily since um, earlier this year, but really since 2014? Yes, so
1: we argue in the book that the term new Cold War is it's quite misleading uh, because the dynamics of the Cold War and the current situation we, we now live in, they're very different. Um, even though there is, again, rivalry between Russia and the West, uh, that's not a whole story. Um, one thing that is lacking today is the ideological aspect in this rivalry. So today's Russia doesn't seem to have much to offer in terms of um, political system for for other countries to follow. Um, Russia is today more like an imperial power seeking to expand. And that's a remarkable difference to the Cold War years uh, when Soviet Union tried to spread a communist ideology and the worldview all around the world. Also, the threats that we we see today are much more complex and and unpredictable than during the Cold War. Um, We now have new state and also non-state actors that did not have a significant role during the Cold War, uh, like China, but also more, more abstract issues like global warming, transnational crime, terrorism, things like this. Uh, And also the ways and places where wars and conflicts are conducted are dramatically different nowadays. Um, For example, the cyber dimension of warfare is growing extremely fast and the um, traditional division between internal and external security are blurring. So that's why we argue that uh, talking of new Cold War is is, uh, at least slightly misleading.
0: That makes sense. But you do see that there are, obviously, in that massive list of things that NATO has to think about, um, they may not be a new Cold War, but they certainly are going to be impacting whatever the next round of debates are around burden sharing within NATO membership. So I'm wondering if you could maybe highlight what some of the drivers are around what could happen in that discussion and what we should maybe look out for.
1: Sure. Um, There are, of course, several possible emerging drivers, but in the book, we raised three of them. And these were transactionalism, the rise of China and societal resilience. Uh, If I start with transactionalism, so it's, it's not a new phenomenon in NATO, but it has increased a lot in recent years. And what it means in practice is that member states focus on short-term minor political, military, and economic transactions instead of focusing on major transatlantic objectives. Uh, and if member countries only look for this kind of short-term wins uh, and their own interests, it creates a risk that decades-long partnerships are belittled, uh, and in a worst-case scenario, it can also stagnate the functionality of NATO if, if every little decision beca- becomes kind of a bargaining chip. Uh, the second uh, issue that we raise is China, and... Um, China's military presence in NATO's operational area is still very limited, uh, but it, its increasing influence in in world politics has real real consequences for NATO too. Uh, as we all know, the U.S. is shifting its focus to Asia, but many European allies still quite understandably see. Russia as a much more concrete security threat. Um, And if this kind of internal disunity continues, um, NATO will have difficulties in in forming a coherent China strategy and and agreeing on how to share the burden of defending Western societies against Chinese uh, influence. And lastly, um, we raised the issue of societal resilience, Uh, In the book, we discuss NATO's response to the COVID-19 pandemic, which was a prime example of how NATO faces both growing demands to focus on collective defense, kind of its its traditional task, but also this kind of uh, non-military tasks like responding to pandemics, counterterrorism, crisis management, uh, and so on. So NATO needs to keep adapting to new challenges and threats. And all this adds new layers to the burden-sharing debate and and makes it more complicated. So, just quickly to summarize, um, what these uh, new emerging drivers show is that it's increasingly challenging to define burden-sharing. It's difficult to determine its boundaries or or isolate it from other transatlantic or or global issues.
0: Not easy tasks, as we've already <laughs> but very clearly laid out. So that's much appreciated by myself and I'm sure the other readers of the book as well. Um, and I want to kind of stay on this idea of sort of not quite predicting the future, but thinking of ways to think about the future, if you were, if you will. Um, and one of the structural elements of the book is um, this kind of dialogue, I suppose, between the idea of thinking of uh progression and historical developments as being time's arrow. Um, So kind of moving in a linear direction versus being more cyclical with kind of the same sorts of topics coming up in different times, but then, you know, they come up at the beginning and then a few decades later, they come up again, sort of things recurring over time. Um, And I'm wondering kind of in this sort of sense of summarizing, if you could help us understand um, how we can use these tools of sort of linear progression versus more cyclical or kind of how do we find the balance between them when we think about discussions around burden sharing?
1: Yes. So like, like you explained there, we, we use the concepts of time's arrow and time cycle as analytical tools in the book to conceptualize the history of the overall dynamics of NATO's burden sharing. Um, the way we see it, there are two simultaneous dynamics at play here. Um, on the one hand, we found that burden sharing disputes seem to follow this kind of arrow-like logic. And this means that the um, possible topics around the burden sharing debate evolve over time into different directions. So it's not just that one linear line, like an arrow goes, but it it can also um, go to different directions in a way. So for example, Uh, The addition of -of out-of-area operations to NATO's task lists can be seen as an expansion or divergence uh, in the burden-sharing debate. Uh, Another might be this response to COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, But on the other hand, um, burden-sharing disputes are rarely solved or rarely completely disappear from NATO's agenda. But instead, uh, the disputes emerge and re-emerge on NATO's agenda every now and then And and this, again, speaks in favor of cyclicality. So, in other words, burden sharing disputes seem to diversify and expand, but at the same time, they also repeat themselves.
0: Interesting. I, I can almost visually map out parts of the book kind of along these different ideas. I don't know. Maybe I'm going too far with that. The book already has some good diagrams. I don't think I can really improve on that. Um, but it's a really useful like, conceptual way to think about kind of what's happened and how do we put it together. Um, and I guess that's sort of my next question, one of my last questions, is how can we conceptualize the future debates, right? You, you've already sort of helped us highlight what some of the issues might be and what things might change versus stay the same, etc., um, but you do have some cool visuals in the book. So I'm wondering if you can maybe tell us a little bit about that. Uh, well, as
1: as you probably know from own experience, forecasting and conceptualizing the future is, is always a challenge for any social scientist. But we felt that um, it was kind of our duty to try it anyway, uh, to test our thinking and to provide, in a way, some policy relevance in the book as well. Uh, So what we chose to do in practice was to simplify the setting by making a simple drawing with two axes, um, focusing horizontally on the level of NATO's internal unity and solidarity, and then vertically on the scope and integrity of the burden-sharing agenda. And that way we were um, able to distinguish four poles at the extremes of uh, both axes. Uh, So there were transactionalism versus transatlanticism and then uh, limited versus open-ended burden-sharing agenda. And based on this, we could um, forecast some future aspects or tendencies in the burden-sharing debate. Um, Firstly, uh, NATO seems to be on a track in which domestic politics within member countries count more and more in the development and intensity of burden sharing disputes. Um, In the past, security policy was much more clearly at this kind of closed door interstate issue But especially now that with the rise of populism, uh, non-liberal political forces uh, in different countries in Europe and the increasingly transactional approach to international relations, uh, these are all likely to shape the domestic willingness to engage in multilateral security cooperation. And secondly, um, it seems that the burden-sharing agenda is becoming more complicated and and more interdependencies between different disputes will emerge. Uh, and it, it's likely that burden-sharing debate will intensify in the future. So we see challenges ahead for NATO, but we must also remember that NATO has a great deal of resilience and continuity. After all, it has survived dozens of crises during the past 70 years. Um, And so far, NATO's disputes and this crisis have been limited to the political domain of NATO. And the military NATO, on the other hand, has been virtually intact by burden-sharing disputes. It has always functioned as it should. So in other words, burden-sharing disputes have have all being a political phenomenon separated from from NATO's ability to function as a, as a military organization.
0: Important clarification and um, just really helpful for us to think through. Um, I know I've said this before, but just the idea of being able to link the history and what might happen next in an actually useful way, rather than just going, what's in the news today? Oh, no, is a really, really helpful contribution. So um, thank you both for the work that has resulted in this book. Um, And I'm going to ask you one further predicting the future question. Um, This might be the hardest one yet. So it's clearly not the hard one is about whether or not we're in a Cold War. Um, This is definitely the hardest question. The book is obviously now out even though NAO's membership debates are ongoing, burden sharing, who knows how it will change in future. Um, but the book is available. So might there be something either or both of you are working on next you can give us a little teaser of? Sure, that's indeed the most difficult question. <laughs>
1: um, I personally, I will continue working on my PhD dissertation, um, where I study European strategic autonomy from the US perspective, which is uh, a bit different than uh, what has Ooh. been studied before. So, so I study how the US has defined, viewed and, and reacted to European attempts to integrate their security and defence policies and, and how they have reacted to this more recent attempts to create strategic autonomy. But together cool. with okay. <laughs> together with Tommy, we're also working on another book project, uh, where we take a look at how Finland's Western partners see see Finland as a security and defense actor. Um, well, Finland and Sweden are now both undergoing a big change in their in their foreign uh, and security policies. Uh, now that the decades of neutrality and non-alignment are are coming to an end and changing into NATO membership uh and in the book we'll we'll take a look at how this change is perceived in in the nato capitals
0: well not staying straying away from the very topical and the very helpful research clearly um so best of luck with your phd research and the both of you with your next book project um i'm sure that when it's done we will want to invite you back to hear more about it thank you very Um, much but in the meantime while you are off doing both of those very it's again, you're not picking easy projects. Um, (laughs) So clearly (laughs) a lot to be going on with. Um, But while you are off doing that, listeners can read the book that we've been discussing, which again is titled NATO's Burden Sharing Disputes, Past, Present and Future Prospects, out in 2022 from Palgrave Macmillan. And it was written by Dr. Tommy Koi-Vula and Helia Osa, who we've been so lucky to have with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.